This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. We're eating on the go, we're running around, we're not thinking about what we eat. And I believe that we should take a step back and we should start eating mindfully, thinking about where our food comes from, what we're eating, where we're going to eat, who we're going to eat with. It's so important. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the healing qualities of chaga. We'll discuss how to eat mindfully. We'll consider why you might need a coach. And lastly, we'll hear about strategies for couples' conflict resolution. But first, a little bit of business. Today's sponsor is Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's Unflavor, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with that great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try Activated Charcoal and Mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel wrote a great article about a hot nutraceutical in the November issue of Tonic, and we're here to discuss that today. And Joel, this is one that I saw a lot at CHFA. Oh, yeah. But it's something that, until I read your article, I really didn't know a lot about, and I bet you our listeners don't either, and that is chaga. Am I even pronouncing it right? Chaga, chaga, tomato, tomato. Very good. <laughs> what, what, what is it? Well, it's quite interesting. Most people, and if you look at most of the literature out there, they call it a mushroom. In fact, it's referred to, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, the king of mushrooms. Yes. It's not actually a mushroom. What it is, is it's a fungus like mushrooms, but it's in a different genotype classification. I guess all mushrooms are funguses, but not all fungi are mushrooms. Is correct. That right? Okay. That is correct. And chaga is incredibly unique. First of all, it's where it is and how you find it. If you look in forests, anywhere pretty much that we, our listening audience would listen to, you look for these charcoal black colored lumps on the side of trees. If you crack them open, you'll see on the outside, they're midnight black. Right. On the inside, they're mild to really bright orange. It, it's very unique. As soon as you see it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And the thing is, you have to be really lucky to even find the lumps to begin with. The lumps, which is the chaga, are quite rare. By conservative estimates, there's only one out of every 4,000 birch trees. And it's most commonly found on birch. But it's only one in 4,000 have these. And birches are dying out, right? Correct. It's, it's not as though there's a lot of birch trees around anymore. No, there's a lot of diseases that attack 
birch trees. Does chaga destroy the birch tree? No, that's one of the beautiful things about it is. What happens is chaga is formed by airborne spores that attach to lesions on the tree. So if a branch breaks or if the bark is cut and there's a little slit there, the actual spores land on that and then start growing. But it's not a parasitic relationship. It does take nutrients from the birch tree, but birch trees can survive forever with chaga on them. Okay. No problems there. Now, just to be clear for our listeners, you are not advocating going into the forest and harvesting chaga yourself, right? Oh, it, heck no. Because it, it has to be processed in order for it to be used properly. Correct. Right? Okay. Just to clarify, even if you should find one of those one in 4,000, is that what yes. you said? Go tell somebody. Don't just, you know, lick it or anything. No. You don't want to do that. I'd actually recommend not telling anyone anything like that because they, they do take a long time to grow. They okay. are rare. Leave them, let them be. The hope is that what will end up happening is by them being there and not being disturbed, they'll manage to spread yeah. their spores around and there'll be more of them. Okay. That, that's the hope. We don't want them to be eradicated can, can by over-harvesting. Can they grow on any trees other than birch? They do grow on other trees, but birch are by far right. the most common. Okay. So how do people collect it if it's so rare and we have to wait for it, and it's slow growing. How do, how do we harvest it? It is harvested. By, is that the right? Is that the right word? Harvest oh yeah, it? harvest is the correct word. It's harvested in a relatively specialized process. I'll be honest; I'm not personally familiar with it. I've okay. never gone out on it, but I've been told by people who do. We have a gentleman, for example, in Saskatchewan who harvests some of it, and. He is very ethical, and what he does is he harvests in such a way that he takes part of it, part of it remains, and at the same time, it releases a lot of spores right. in the hope of getting more. But you, what you don't want to do is basically lop it off or hurt the tree, in which case, yes, you have the chaga, but you've harmed the tree, and at the same time, there's going to be no regeneration of the, from that chaga. It can't be commercially farmed, for example, right? It has to grow in the wild? Correct. They have tried for decades right. with no success at all. Okay, so how is chaga used historically? Chaga, although it may be new to most of your listeners, and in fact, it was new to me only four or five years ago, chaga has been around forever. And I do literally mean forever. In 1991, scientists discovered a 5,000-year-old Iceman uh, frozen in the European Alps. I'm not going to try was that butchering U- his name. Was that Utsi or whatever? Oh, you are correct. I wasn't going to try and do yeah, that I, one. I, I, know, I know my frozen <laughs> man, and that's Utsi. Yeah. It is Utsi. And the important thing is they found with him in a pouch yeah, a fungi p- that was a relative of Chaga. I think they tested his insides, too, as to what he was eating and what he was consuming. Yes. And he actually had a lot of herbal remedies on him, but he was clearly using them as well, right? That's how oh, they yes, it. definitely. He was using them. So chaga was known way back then. Right. On top of that, it's a fundamental part of Chinese, Russian, and Scandinavian traditional medicine, as well as because it grows here, it was used by the indigenous people in Canada. Okay. So lots of people were using it. Mm-hmm. Why? What's so good about it? Well, the, the first modern notation of it right. was by the Russian dissident. I remember studying him when yeah. I was in school, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yep. And he brought Chaga to the attention of everyone when he wrote a book while in captivity describing cancer patients in captivity in Siberia being treated for cancer with Chaga, wow. with success. 
It was so successful in Siberia that chaga was actually added to the Russian pharmacopoeia, which is the fundamental pharmaceutical database given to doctors and clinicians. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you have this raw chaga. Mm -hmm. How is it processed? Like if I were to go and buy it, what form does it come in? Traditionally, it was made into a tea. Okay. Traditionally. Like straight from the tree? Like they would just... They would dry it. They would let it sit out, air dry, right. chop it up, and then turn it into tea. It's a, it's a bit of a pain in the butt to turn into tea. I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and you run the risk if you make some and then you let it sit that it could go moldy fairly easily because it's very nutrition. It runs the risk of going moldy because it's very nutrient dense. Okay. But what most people do is they'll take it in either a liquid extract or in capsules. Okay. So with the extract, it's sort of the good stuff is sort of distilled down to like a condensed form. Is that is that essentially what essentially it is? what they do is they take the raw chaga, yep. macerate it, which is soaking it yep. in alcohol and water for a specified amount of time, and then they press off the leftover powder, and you're left with a concentrated liquid. Okay. I got to ask, Joel, because the, mm-hmm. these things come up when, when, when listeners come and speak with me. How does it taste? Actually, chugga, depending on, on brand, yeah. uh, some of it's quite pleasant. I've had chugga myself extract just in water and quite enjoyed it. Is it like chicken? What is it? No, it's... <laughs> Everything's it's, it's, like it's, chicken, right? <laughs> it's like a slightly woodsy tea. Oh, okay. Depending on the amount of alcohol. Right. It's, so it's not an umami, mushroomy... No, no, type nothing of like that. Okay. Nothing like that. And you're also not taking a whack load of it. Okay. You're taking drops at a time if you're doing liquid. If you're doing capsules, you're doing one or two capsules. My personal preference yeah. is the capsule. That's okay. my personal preference. Why is that? Because you can get a higher concentration right. in the capsule. Okay. Is this something you're taking every day or as like a preventative measure or is this something you take when you need it? Personally, I take it in the winter. Okay. I do not take it the rest of the year, but that's my personal preference. And we'll find out why, I presume. Yes. Okay, so, so let's start with why would somebody want to take chaga? What's it good for? Well, the first thing to know about chaga is there's no negative to taking it. It's not one of those things that you only take if A, and if not A, then don't take it no matter what. Chaga has a wide range of uses, and on top of that is there's no negative to it. Okay. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So, first are, you, are you saying there's no side effects? Or? Not really. Not unless you're allergic to it. There's no known. Okay, but you can be allergic to well, it. Well, you can be allergic to anything natural. Okay. It, it's entirely possible. Anything that grows, you can be allergic to, but it's quite rare. Okay. It is quite rare. Sorry. No but problem. if someone were allergic to it, would it be toxic to them to the no. point, well, like an anaphylactic reaction? Or? Oh, no, no. There's no known record of that. The only thing that we have found out there is uh, atopic dermatitis, so basically slight hives. Okay. Short term, stop using it. It goes away. It goes away. Cool. Yep. And you take it during the winter and people take it because? I take it for its immune effect. Okay. I take it to keep my immune system basically just tuned up. Cool. It's part of my immune regimen during the winter when I'm susceptible because I walk around in shorts and a t-shirt all year. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> so is this, is this deal with like less sunlight, that sort of thing, and, and colder weather? Correct. And, and, okay. And the, but the big one is being in sealed rooms with people for extended amounts of time and all of their lovely germs. Right. <laughs> we're, here to, we're in a recording booth right now, and it's look, he's looking right at me, and I haven't sneezed or coughed or anything. Yet. Uh, um, so um, it helps with that. What else? else can it help with? It helps with a lot of different things. It's also known as a potent antioxidant, and that's evident by the beautiful, beautiful deep orange color. 
Okay. Any deep color found in nature is an antioxidant. It's polyphenols. It has just tons of them. Now, the beautiful part is they've done some work on the compounds specifically found in chaga and found that in its antioxidant capacity, it helps actually tumor cells self-destruct. Not all tumor cells, some tumor cells self-destruct. At the same time, it doesn't harm healthy cells. That's fairly unique. Researchers are really excited and expanding their research in that area in the realm of skincare. So you're taking care of your skin, making it healthy, reducing the signs of aging from the inside out. Okay, that sounds good. Yep. Okay, so it helps as an antioxidant. Yes. In your article, you say that it can help with cholesterol and blood pressure. That's a biggie. Because it's an antioxidant-rich food, at the same time, it's also a fiber-rich food. They found that that combination together helps reduce LDL, low-density lipoprotein, bad cholesterol, and helps normalize blood pressure at the same time. Together, those two things helps reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease any way you come upon it. But if you're taking capsules, are you getting enough fiber from those capsules that that it's going to make a difference? Oh, yeah. There's a high percentage of it is fiber. I'm not saying to take it as your only source of fiber by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the combination of the high antioxidant with the high fiber together that does help. Okay. In the article, you also go on to say that it helps with inflammation. Yep. So what do you mean by that? We all have chronic inflammation. Yes. Everyone. It's due to stress levels, poor diet, lack of exercise, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And they're finding that a lot of uh, illnesses are connected with inflammation internally. And and it's going to be Almost all chronic conditions. Right. Okay. And what they found is that chaga helps by actually regulating something called cytokines. And those are involved in how your immune system communicates within itself throughout your body. Okay. And by regulating that, chaga helps reduce inflammation, specifically chronic inflammation, helps your body basically reset itself to some extent and relax and allows your immune system to work properly, not hyperstimulated and attacking itself. Okay. So for this usage, is this, are you taking this like a supplement or are you taking it when you're feeling like you got like joint pain or, or stuff like that? For chronic inflammation, you would be taking it as a supplement daily. You wouldn't stop. Okay. And lastly, in the article, you discuss how it might help with blood sugar levels. Yeah. Here's a personally interesting one because okay. of me. What it does is they actually found that chaga inhibits, I'm going to try to pronounce this, alpha-glucosidase. It's an enzyme involved in your body in the actual digestion of carbohydrates. By inhibiting it, it reduces its ability to absorb carbohydrates from what you eat. Therefore, more carbohydrates don't get turned into blood sugar, and it doesn't raise your blood sugar levels as high. Oh, wow. Okay, so would you recommend this for people that have higher blood sugar levels, in addition to the other things that they have to do to maintain blood sugar levels, or is this something for everybody? What I would do first is, if you're looking to reduce spiking blood sugar, before you started with chaga, I would definitely talk to your healthcare provider just to make sure you don't... That's an area where you don't want to just go willy-nilly without letting them know. Right. If you're someone who's healthy and you're just looking, okay, yeah, I, I, I assume I'm spiking a fair bit, Yeah, you could take it on your own without much issue. But if you're doing it because of a medical condition, I would definitely talk to your practitioner first. Okay. So let's say you've convinced our listeners that they should go and get some chaga. Yeah. What should they be looking for 
when they go to the market to see if they can locate it? What sort of like what sort of dosages and what sort of impurities should they be avoiding? How, how do you get a good chaga product? Well, the first thing is with anything, I try and go certified organic first. Okay. And not just where it says organic on the label. I want to see the actual USDA certified organic logo on it because that is proof that it's not just marketing. It actually is clean. Isn't that hard to do when you're harvesting in the wild to get that label? It's brutal. But that's one of the big benefits of looking for it is you know that that's the cleanest, purest product out there when it has the USDA organic symbol on it. Is this an expensive product or, or is this one that's manageable if you were going to take it regularly? It's manageable. It's not ridiculously inexpensive like vitamin D, right. but it's manageable. You're, you're not paying 2 or $3 a capsule. Okay. And if people wanted more information about this, how can they reach out to you? Easiest one is to go to purelynaturalstore.com. P-U-R-E-L-E, naturalstore.com, or you could actually just call us. I think we're linked through you. Correct. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're going to be back next month, right? Always. This is the highlight of my month. That's great. That's so nice (laughs) to hear. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to eat mindfully on The Tonic. Now that summer has given way to the 9 to 5 grind, Tabasco and Egg Farmers of Ontario have created delicious breakfast recipes for 7 Days of Eggs, showing Canadians how to shake up their workweek breakfasts. With 7 different sauces, it's easy to spice up a scramble or heighten the flavor of a ho-hum sandwich for different eggs every day of the week. To get you started, Tabasco and Egg Farmers of Ontario are giving away 5 prizes of $1,000 in groceries. Visit tabascosauce.ca for contest details and to find quick, delicious, and nutritious breakfast recipes, including some that are perfect for meal prepping for even the busiest of mornings. Vital Directives is a center committed to helping people ignite their innate healing power and remove the barriers of fear that keep them in pain. Through changing their clients' mindset and teaching them to connect with their body, the Vital Directives step-by-step process helps them focus, feel safe, and get immediate relief. Their process involves removing the physical limitations induced by chronic pain while creating personalized, high-level self-care and preventative measures. They believe that significantly reducing chronic pain is just the first step. Through powerful physical exercises and mindset shifts, coupled with solid support system, they inspire people to transform from the inside out. For more information, visit their website at vitaldirectives.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. Shauna Lindzen is a registered dietitian with over 25 years of nutrition experience. She worked as a clinical dietitian at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in nephrology and neurosurgery for over 12 years. Since leaving the clinical setting, she's been working in the community as a consulting dietitian. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. Most recently, she's developed cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education for her clientele. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. You can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinson.com. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So uh, one of the rules that we had when our kids were growing up is everybody could kind of do their own thing at breakfast and lunch, but we made sure that we had dinner together as a family virtually every weeknight. Love that. And there were lots of reasons why we did it, but I know it's important to you. 
So why do you think it's important to do that? So the concept of eating mindfully yeah. or intuitive eating comes into play. And it's interesting because when I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking about babies. When babies are hungry, they wake up, they cry, they eat, they eat just what they need, and then they they poop, they go back to sleep. And it's it's a very routine thing. As we get older, things change. So when as adults, we're eating on the go, we're running around, we're not thinking about what we eat. And I believe that we should take a step back and we should start eating mindfully, thinking about where our food comes from, what we're eating, where we're going to eat, who we're going to eat with. It's so important. Yeah. And my take on it also is it's important to eat collectively. You can do all those things. And obviously I'm speaking to people who live in groups. If you're living alone, it's more difficult to do this. But eating alone is not the full experience. Interestingly enough, Canada's Food Guide came out, a new one came out this past year, and they actually put that into the Food Guide to enjoy meals with people. Even if you eat alone, you can once a week, twice a week, you can invite a friend over or go out or go to... FaceTime. FaceTime or go to a community event. Right. It's all about enjoying the experience, not just the food, but enjoying... Everything about the taste, the texture, the company, the surroundings, the environment, that's called mindfulness instead of just shoveling the food into your mouth and not thinking about it. It's an interesting relationship that people have with food. Like, I love my food. I love my food, (laughs) which is a good thing. I mean, because I think it's important. But, you know, the extreme going in that direction is you can love food a little bit too much, right? You can become a food snob or you can, you know, spend too much of your time dwelling on food. Or you can become overweight because you love your food so much you really can't stop eating it. And I've suffered from all those problems, too. I wouldn't change my relationship with food to the extent that it will always be important to me. But I see so many people for whom food isn't important. I wonder why, you know, everybody spends so much time eating. How could you not have a a good relationship with food? And everybody has to eat. And everybody, as you said, has a different relationship with food. It's a very, very, very complex topic. And everyone's different with their relationship with food. So it's actually a loaded subject. Right. Right. It's not like a cookie cutter approach. Right. When we talk about um, how we eat, what we eat, where we eat. So as a nutritionist, how would you tell people to become mindful about their food? What can they do in a a practical way? Okay, so I have a few tools that I use in my private practice. Um, The first tool is the satiety scale. Have you ever heard of that one? No, what's up? So the satiety scale, what you do is you look at number one through 10 and you say, one, I'm starving. Like I'm starving to the point where I'm going to pass out. 10 is I'm so full that I'm going to be sick. Right. Five is I'm neutral. What I tell people is to think if you're if you're intellectualizing this, think about staying between kind of the four to six or the three to seven, meaning when you eat, think about how full you're actually getting when we're talking about how right. with satiety and Sorry, if you're if you're three, it means I'm getting very I'm starting to get very hungry. You don't want to get down to the point of where you're starving, where you're at a one, but you want to get to the point where you're at about a three or a four, meaning I'm pretty hungry. Right. Right. When we talk about eating too much, it's on the opposite side. You want to eat until you're about a seven. 
Right. So you're not so full that you're at like I'm so stuffed I'm going to I'm going to be sick. Right. So you want to tightly regulate yourself, not in an obsessive way, but just in like a thought process way of I'm satisfying myself. I'm not getting too hungry and I'm not getting too full. Right. I, I think it's easier when you're hungry to say, okay, now it's time to eat. Presuming you're in a position to actually eat, you're near food. The harder part for me is when to stop. And what I've been trying to do lately is sort of when I clean my plate, because I'm a clean plate ranger, (laughs) um, before I decide I'm going to take more, I will see if I can hold off for a few minutes. Well, guess what the magic number is in terms of minutes? Is it five minutes? 20. 20, okay. And if you're sitting down at a restaurant with people, like your wife or friends or family, whomever, you are typically sitting there for more than 20 minutes. But if you're sitting in front of the TV eating, you're probably only eating and finishing it in five minutes. Right. So the magic number from your stomach to your brain, the connection is 20 minutes. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. The, the longer I wait, the less likely it is I'm going to put more food on my plate. Was and it? think about being in a restaurant, how relaxing it is. It's different. Like, you realize you're full after the 20 minutes. You're thinking about it. You're you're talking to people. And it's more satisfying than eating very quickly and then feeling too full in 20 minutes. Make sense? Yeah. What other tips do you have for mindful eating? Okay, my one of my favorite tips, and I always this tip always comes up during the Halloween season or Christmas season or holiday season, is to rate your food from one to ten in terms of how much you want it. Right. So I ask people, I say desserts. Okay. So you're perfect for this, Jamie. Yep. So I'm gonna ask you to rate pecan pie. Okay. Out of one to ten, how much do you want? Where it? ten is the best? Where ten is the best. I'm a five on pecan pie. It's not my favorite. Okay. Carrot cake. Three. Lemon meringue pie. Six. Chocolate mousse. Four. Jamie Oliver's chocolate tart. Nine. Nine and a half, ten. Okay. And what am I missing here? I've I've hit the carrot, I've hit the lemon, I've hit the chocolate, I've hit the nut. Let's say... Cheesecake. Cheesecake I haven't hit that's, yet. That's another nine. That's another nine. So what I say to people is save the best for the nines or tens. Of course. If a three. So if I put a piece of, what was your three again? Was it pecan uh, pie or carrot cake? Yeah, probably carrot cake. If I put a piece of carrot cake in front of you right now, would you eat it? Okay. There's another factor though. Naomi. Who made it? <laughs> Naomi, Naomi is an excellent baker. I mean, she reviews cookbooks. Yeah. She's a phenomenal, over, a phenomenal yeah. baker. So yeah. pretty much everything she makes is outstanding. Whether it's my favorite flavor profile or not, she does a bang up job okay, on it. Let's say- and, and the other difficulty is I'm also an excellent cook. So like, even yeah. if I'm making something for somebody else, I'm probably going to eat it. So the nines and tens are more frequent in my house than others. But like, for example, your point's well taken. When we go to a restaurant, for example, that lexicon goes through my head all the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to hold off. I love bread, but if I know there's a dessert, I'm not going not to eat the bread so that I can make room for That's the dessert. That's the way to do it. And I sometimes, if I'm in a restaurant and I know the bread, what I do is I, I make fun of it. I say, that tastes like a marshmallow. It yeah. just tastes like nothing. It's fluffy. It doesn't have good flavor or texture. I'm going to forego that. Right. And that is the reigning thing. So another thing quickly is like at Halloween, chocolate bars. So right. if I I say to you, coffee crisp versus Snickers. Coffee crisp is the king. 
I think it's the king too. We've got similar tastes. Yeah. We're sharing crisp. some genetics there. Yeah, coffee crisp is the king. I love coffee crisp, yeah. but if you gave me something, I don't know, what do you not like? Those little candy corn things. So that, like the straight the up, orange and the, yellow thing? Yeah, the straight up hard sugary stuff is not my bag. Yeah, so I'm going to put that at about a two. And anything yeah. with like artificial dye, I'm not there. The suckers throw out. So that's my point. Like when Halloween comes, Coffee Chris is where it's at, baby. Yeah. So I'm going to give that my 10. I'm going to give that my treat for the night. Right. Done. Right. No, exactly. I hear you. And you also have to think of, you don't want to do the all or nothing approach either. Right. right? So if something is, you say it's a five out of 10, eat half. That's a good point. Thank you. I find, you know, lately since the summer, I've been trying to lose some weight. Because I've been drifting, right? I'm not where I'm not back where I was when I was very heavy. But you know, after 13 years of having lost my significant weight, it's a lifestyle thing, and I find you know I'm cutting corners. I get older; it's harder to take the weight off. So what I've been doing is you, you give yourself little treats because if you don't, then when you're off the wagon, on the wagon, I can't remember what yeah. happens. But like when you f up it becomes that much worse. Whereas if you're giving yourself little treats as you go along, you can say, okay, I made a mistake, but it's okay. I live to fight another day. You just said the perfect thing for this subject. Eating mindfully does include drifting. Yeah. And you want to follow a lifestyle, not a diet approach. You're there, Jamie. You've lost your weight. Yeah. You've kept it off. For the most you part, drift yeah. Yeah. and you still indulge. And then you watch yourself. You're there. Yeah. And if you're one of those people who loves food and find it difficult to lose, I, I sympathize with you. Like my metabolism is horrible generally <laughs> and I have to watch myself. And I, you know, you can say to yourself, it's okay. You can have those things, but you're going to reach that red line. And if you're in the red line, you have to do something about it. And that's just reality. And if you don't, well, then you're, you're giving up the good fight, I think. And know? I think you're following the 80-20 yeah, concept. 100%. And I don't love to call it an 80-20 rule because I don't like rules, right? Yeah. Rules aren't so good. I'm not so good with rules either. I'm actually now calling it the 80-20 concept. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, I can do that. You can do that. And you're good at that. Meeting 80% of the time, eat really well. 20% of the time, have the time of your life. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great topic. Thank you. We're going to come back next month, but we've got to take a short break. We'll be right back on The Tonic. It's new. It's powerful. It's the next generation. It's Purica Recovery 3.0, a new formulation for inflammation relief and healing that brings together the strength of the original Purica Recovery with the rapid relief of Purica Curcumin 30% BDMC. It's a powerful antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and immunity optimizer all in one. It works by repairing the damage and relieving the stress that's at the root cause of pain. It's Purica Recovery 3.0, and it's coming soon from Purica. For more information, visit Purica.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Our next guest, Rod McDonald, has over 30 years in the field of self-development. 
Rod is the CEO of the Certified Coaches Federation, one of the largest coach education companies in the world, and a speaker, coach, and author. For more information on Rod, visit indestructiblehuman.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, sir. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you doing? Good. This is a little bit of self-promotion for you. You get to explain yourself and why you are important and why somebody might want to hire somebody such as you. We're going to talk about coaching today, right? Absolutely. You know, the, the whole topic of coaching is something that's near and dear to my heart. You've been doing this for years, I know. What are some of the reasons that people come to you or would come to a coach in general? Well, let's tackle it from the perspective of why would people come to a coach in general? Yeah. Because, you know, the truth is that we all, even coaches, we all have goals and objectives and things that we'd like to accomplish. And for many of us, those things, maybe we've had those for, you know, years, even decades, things that we want to accomplish. It might be starting a new business or getting into a new relationship or, you know, adopting a new habit in your life. And there's always something that has gotten in the way. And what a coach can do is to accelerate your knowledge, accelerate your ability to get past whatever's been blocking you in onto the thing that you actually want to do. Last time you were on the show, we discussed how important it was to have a support network. And, and, you know, for a lot of people, that's their friends and family who are going to help them along the way with their goal. Why would somebody choose to go to a coach as opposed to perhaps relying on friends or family for one of these things that they're trying to achieve? It's a great question. And the truth is that friends and family are great and they're extremely important to anyone achieving their goals. But the problem is with many friends and families, they have their own agendas that have to do with their own goals and and what they think is right or not right or an appropriate goal. And, you know, many of us would have grown up with friends or family members who maybe encouraged us, but then others that would have said, oh, no, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Don't bother doing that. You're fine the way that you are. And oftentimes that's because they're trying to not intentionally hold you back, but what they're trying to do is make themselves feel better by keeping you within their circle and there's a fear that you might actually leave that circle when you're on your way to being a better version of yourself. Right. And, you know, sometimes I feel the people that are close to you, maybe it's not that they don't want you to succeed, but maybe they don't want you to feel pain. In other words, what you're trying to do maybe is difficult and they don't want to see you go through that struggle. So maybe they're not going to encourage the struggle because they don't want to see you struggle. Right. Absolutely. You know, and we see that a lot often with the parents or parental figures in our lives that are trying to protect us from that, as you said, that pain from failure, sometimes because that's left over from their own lives because they experience that. And for many, depending on what age group we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, their parents would have survived and lived through different times of other conflict and wars. And so there's, in some cases, a sense of scarcity of we have to hold on to what we have. Don't try to stretch too far out. Just do what's safe. But in today's world and today's economy, in many cases, a lot more turbulence, a lot more volatility. And so we actually have to become more adaptable to thrive in today's world. Hmm. If I were trying to achieve something, big goal, small goal, how would I know whether I would benefit from the assistance of a coach? Well, I guess the easiest question is, have you accomplished it yet? If you haven't accomplished the goal, if you've had a goal for a while or something has come up and you've maybe tried a few things, kind of dipped your toe in the water of, of an attempt or two and it hasn't worked, then why wait? And one of the things that I've seen in a lot of the people that I work with is they find themselves in a bit of limbo and they're sort of stuck in between where on the one hand, 
they have this goal that they really, really want, and on the opposite end of the spectrum is the chance that they could just let it go and just go on with their life. But they get stuck in the middle where they're not willing to do the work to get the goal, and they're not willing to abandon the goal. Right. And so it's just suffering in the middle. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that's horrible. It's uh, horrible, yeah. And I think for a lot of people, it's because they don't know what, what steps need to be taken, right? And I don't mean that in sort of a overarching way. They, they literally don't know what their next step should be. They don't know how, they don't know the steps that are necessary to achieve their goal. They haven't planned it. They haven't organized themselves, you know? And it, in some cases, it's that they don't know the actual steps. In other cases, they know the steps, but they maybe they don't know the order that they should take, or they're just scared to take that yeah, first step. Yeah, 100%. And so if you take the example of somebody who knows that they need to improve their health, whether it's a weight loss goal or reduce blood pressure, something like that, most people know that they should eat healthier foods and reduce the unhealthy foods. They know they should exercise more and sit on their backsides less. But for some reason, they're not able to do that. And so one of the most important things that a coach can do is provide clarity to get the goal really, really clear and attainable, break it down with the client to determine what what's the easiest first few steps to take so that it's not a huge goal that's going to take a year. It's actually a goal that can be done tomorrow, the first step anyway. And then to provide accountability for it to say, hey, okay, so you said you're going to go to the gym. What day this week are you going to go to the gym? Well, later this week. Well, which day later this yeah. week? Well, Thursday. Okay, well, what time Thursday are you going to go to the gym? I'll go to, I'll go to the gym, you know, at, at 6 o'clock in the morning. Great. So can you send me a text message or, you know, show me a picture of you at the gym knowing that so that you know that you were there and I know that you were there. And so there's this increased sense of accountability so that the client is actually much more likely to actually follow through on those steps. Whereas if it's on their own and there's none of that accountability, it's their own accountability, which is quite fallible. Right. And then the next thing that a coach can do, and this is a sort of a broad overview, but the next thing a coach can do is, is help the client celebrate, is to recognize the effort they put in, even if it was a tiny fraction of an effort, and to help them celebrate that and to recognize that and to feel that appreciation that has no, there's no real other agenda other than helping the person get further and further to their goal. So that's the that's sort of a broad overview of what a coach can do to uh, to help a client be successful. Okay, I, th- I think you've done a good job of explaining why we might want to hire a coach. Now let's get to the nitty gritty. What are some of the considerations if one is considering hiring a coach? What should they be thinking about? So there's a lot of things to consider, but none are necessarily more important than the other other than maybe the chemistry, because you need to really have good chemistry with a coach. And you can think of it this way, that uh, if you've ever worked with someone else that has helped you with something, whether it's a tennis instructor or a ski instructor, somebody who's helped you go from some stage of development in something to the next stage, even a teacher, you know, something like that, we always respond better when we have good chemistry and that person inspires us. And so that chemistry is really important. Certainly certification and and through the Certified Coaches Federation, you know, we're the largest provider of, of certification in the world. And so looking for that certification allows the client to know that they have some baseline of credential that they can work from. They have a process to work from. What's interesting is that Sometimes you would think that you'd want to work with a coach who has already done the thing that you're trying to accomplish, and that can be a good indicator that you'll get success. But it's not the only thing because the, a person may have achieved that success through some other means or they're genetically gifted if, if there's a, a sport goal or a weight right. loss goal or yeah. something like that. I often said but way back when I was a personal trainer that you know most clients would be better served by working with somebody who 
was five pounds overweight, but they had lost 50 pounds rather than somebody who had washboard abs who never had to do a sit-up because they were born with low body fat. You know, right. just because somebody looks a certain way doesn't mean they have more knowledge. So there's a lot of different things that, that you can look at, but certainly chemistry would be the most important thing, followed by credentials. And, um, and just knowing that you're going to have the amount of contact that you need to have or want to have so that you're more assured to, to get to your goal. So when we're talking about the sort of chemistry, how long should you be with a coach before you determine whether or not the chemistry is there or not? Like, is this something you're going to see right away or should you be working with somebody for a little bit and then sort of say, okay, maybe this isn't working out or it is working out, you know? I think that there is some, there's some intuition at play. So you should know within a few minutes if the person has at least sort of some base level alignment with you uh, as a as a coach and client in a coach client relationship and then i would probably give it you know a session maybe two and then uh then you should know for sure but generally speaking as a coach myself, I want to know if I'm going to have chemistry with a client. I won't take on just any client. So I want to know through a conversation and I'll sometimes spend, could be as little as 15 or 20 minutes initially, upwards of two hours on the first conversation to understand whether or not I want to work with that client. Because certainly for me as a busy coach, I want to know that I'm using my time well, but the client as well wants to know as quickly as possible if that's the right person. And I look at myself and I look at all coaches as professionals. And so I also know that if a person isn't the right fit for me, I should know who else I should be able to refer them to that might be a better fit. What are you looking for in a client? Who's that person who you can help? So the kind of people that I really like to work with are people that are really passionate about the goal that they want to accomplish and that it's their goal and not someone else's goal. It's not their boss's goal. It's not their spouse's goal that they're trying to satisfy those other people for. It's not It's not external, that it's their internal uh, drive and passion that's fueling their desire to work with a coach. And certainly it's hard to tell right in that first session whether the person is really going to do the work because there's a lot of follow-up that will have to happen. But I want to get a sense that the person uh, is going to realign as many different aspects of their lives to attain this goal while still protecting the important aspects of their lives. So family and their, their home life, I want them to protect that while they're still working on the goal. So I will often invite the client to bring in their spouse or anybody else that's a, that's a person involved in the goal so we can actually talk about it together and figure out how we can line everything up so the person's more likely to reach their goal. Well, that sounds like great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Jamie. You're going to come back uh, next month and we'll discuss more coaching issues, right? Fantastic. I'll be here. Excellent. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. 
For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. She's also the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival, and she's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. Watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And you can reach out to her at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to The Tonic. Hi again. So last month we talked about pleasure. Yeah. But we're going a totally different space <laughs> yeah. this month. We're talking about couples who are, you know, are fractious and have difficulty working through their issues. And you've got some ideas yeah. on, on how to deal with these altercations, these fights that come up, right? Yeah, and and some people, it's like they just set each other off and and they're always fighting. And I mean, some people are comfortable in that space, but certainly I discovered Alan Frazetti's book on the high conflict couple, uh, Dialectical Behavior Therapy Guide to Finding Peace, Intimacy, and Validation. That and is a mouthful. <laughs> it is a mouthful, but my um, supervisor um, in my therapy program recommended it and I found it brilliant and I've used it with several of the couples that I've worked with. And it really has been helpful to bring people down and connect with each other so that we can actually have conversations that are not yelling matches and where we're interrupting each other all the time. And, and this is advice, not necessarily for people who are fighting all the time. Sure. It, it could yeah. just be for somebody who finds themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a, in, a, in a time of their life where they're fighting more, right? They can yeah. be helpful that way. Sure. And even if it's the, the fight is within yourself. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's definitely some things in there that are helpful and apply, whether you're just arguing, you know, you've got your two sides in your brain. I should do this thing. Yeah, but if I do that thing, I should, you know, I'm going to be frustrated. And, well, but I really should, you know. So it, it's helpful in both those scenarios. Where do you recommend starting? So the first thing I think is to really notice what you want in your relationship. And most of us want closeness, attention, and understanding, right? We want to feel connected. We want to feel close. And often when we're calm, we can communicate in with those values and we can say what we want and we can hear each other. But when we get really emotional, whether it's that we're really hurt, we're really angry, we're really sad, frustrated, we tend to then not express ourselves in the way that we actually ideally would want to. And we tend to say things that we might later regret. And we tend to um, not listen to our partner so well because we're so clouded with these emotions. And so when we engage with a partner at a, at that kind of level, it's often counterproductive and it just escalates. Yeah, I, I think it's two-way street, right? Like When you're upset, you know, you're going to say things you don't necessarily mean to say or you, you hyperbolize, right? You, you, yeah. You know, you, you tend to... You make assumptions, uh, you, make you assumptions, make judgments. You make it worse because in yeah. the heat of the moment, you're, you're passionate. But by the same token, it's hard to hear truths when you're already upset and, you know, you don't aren't necessarily as receptive to it. Well, yeah. And when somebody, you know, pokes something at you to hurt you, right, you often want to retaliate back. You're not like, oh, that hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I'm you know, go, it's gonna, like, ah, I'm fighting back. Yeah, exactly. So rule number one is 
you know, pick your moment, right? Don't, it's not in the middle of a heightened emotional state. It's not perhaps the best time to make a salient point. No. And, it, and the reality is it's not going to actually work. Right. right. And if you if you think rationally, which we often don't in those moments, it, yep. it's not actually effective. And so what I often um, uh, think about, which I find is really helpful, if you think about your emotional state from zero, which is like totally calm and zen to 10, which is like... I've never been a zero in my life. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so and 10, you know, or maybe a one then yeah. for you to a 10, which is, you know, I'm ready to explode. I just yeah. want to strangle this person. I just want to slam the door and leave. So on that scale, if you're at a four or above, you can't hear what's going on. You're not actually communicating in the way that you want to. So right. the first thing is like, notice, okay, where am I at on that scale? Mm-hmm. And if I'm at a four or above, okay, I need to calm down because if I try and communicate now, it's just going to make things worse. My partner probably can't hear me. I can't hear my partner. We're actually not having a conversation, right? right. We're just throwing darts at each other. So what some people will do is we'll sort of try and bring down those emotions. They'll try to um, just kind of notice like what's going on in my body what's going on do I need to go for a walk do I need to go for a run need to calm myself down before we actually engage and that means telling your partner don't just leave but say like you know what I'm going to take 15 minutes and let's come back and chat Yeah, before I say something I'm going to regret yeah and, and, absolutely and also it gives you time to think about what you want to say which is sure the next absolutely. point in, your, in, yes. in the article that you yes. wrote yes. is you know don't just jump into it really think about where, yeah. where you're going with these thoughts right yeah what is it that I actually really want to get across to my partner and what's the ideal of it you know and, and if I'm going to say something is it going to make it better or worse. Right. And, you know, am I going to get what I want? So think a little bit about what's the situation and what's my reaction. Try and keep judgments and assumptions out of it. Just what's the scenario? What just happened? And how am I reacting to that as opposed to making judgments about you're so this or you're so that? Right. So instead of extrapolating and expanding on what might be the issue in front of you and mm-hmm. saying, like, the worst thing you can say is, you always do this. Or, <laughs> Take the always or, and the never or, out. Right. You always do that. You never yeah. do this. You never yeah. do that. Yeah. Right. So so yeah. the person that you're saying that to, where can they go from there? Right. There's nothing yeah. you can respond to. If, if I'm always doing something. You know, well, right. how, do, how do I stop it? Right. Yeah. You know. Well, and what that tends to do also is it layers judgment upon judgment. Right. You, then you're now in a situation where you're piling it on top of each right. other and it's even harder to get out of that because now you have you, you have to dig yourself out of right. layers of judgments and insults often. Right. And, and you say it's you know, I always find it's helpful to sort of try and think about where the other person's coming from. Like mm-hmm. it's the old lawyer in me, right? Like right. you don't have to agree. Yeah. You don't have to agree with an opinion yeah. you don't agree yeah. with, yeah. but it's always helpful to understand where that person's coming sure. from. Sure, yeah. But by the same token, in your article, you said don't make assumptions. Yeah. So, so, so what do you mean by that? Well, I think we often make assumptions. Like the classic one is, you know, your partner turns around and walks away from you. And so you make an assumption like, oh, they're pissed off at me. Well, maybe they just want to go and get a cup of tea, (laughs) you know, or they're not saying anything. That must mean that they don't like what I just said. Well, maybe they're thinking about it. Or so we assume about what our partner is thinking, what they're feeling, what they want to do. And that doesn't help, actually, because then we're building our emotions and our behavior and our thoughts based on that thought and leading us down sometimes a rabbit hole that actually is totally untrue. And we didn't 
necessarily need to go there if we could have checked out that assumption and saying like, okay, so I'm assuming that you're having a hard time listening to this, or I'm assuming that you don't want to talk about this now. It's like, no, I want to talk about it. I just need a cup of tea in order to talk about it. Or I'm assuming that you want to leave me. No, I don't want to leave you. You know, I want yeah, to take yeah. a moment to talk about this. This isn't a pleasant discussion, but I yeah. recognize it's one that we have to have. Yeah. I'm not making decisions, I, but, yeah. I'm, you know, this is anxiety making or whatever, sure. you know, yeah. whatever it might yeah. be, right? Yeah. And if you can talk about what's going on, then that's really helpful. You start to build that understanding and that closeness and that acceptance that we ultimately want. So even just talking about our experience and what our assumptions are helps us to better understand each other. So we can then move on to the next step. Yeah, I'm a pretty good communicator, but mm-hmm. I would imagine for somebody who isn't, like this is takes work and practice, right? Like it Absolutely. it's not going to come to everybody the same way. No, and it's something that most of us haven't learned. We've all learned really bad ways of communicating, and we often learn them from our parents who weren't very good either. Um, right. And so it it does. It it's a hard skill to learn, and. And also, I think for lots of us, the tendency is either I'm going to go in and fight you and fight you down, or I'm just going to withdraw and go somewhere else and pretend it didn't happen right. <laughs> and hope that when I come back, it's all gone. <laughs> well, pe- people don't like engagement, right? Like, like you, you can define it as confrontation, right? But yeah. pe- a lot of people don't find value in confrontation and engagement. Uh, I'm the exact opposite. I find yeah. engagement is always helpful. Yeah. It can be exhausting though. You have to you have, have a lot have, of energy. We have to and you have to have a thick skin and have some good self-confidence. You know, I certainly know I remember my first partner who, you know, we had an argument and I had never heard an argument in my home growing up, so I thought we were finished. I thought that meant that our relationship was over and I yeah. was astounded when he called me the next day. I thought, "Why?" Well, I was sure that we must have been finished because yeah, no. I didn't. I've never seen an argument before. No, an, an argument is just Saturday night in my house. <laughs> <laughs> no, Naomi, I love you, sweetheart. That's not true. We we get along very well. But but no, for a lot of people, they're more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, having those discussions in certain cultures, and, and I think. You know, I harp on this, but I think the internet has actually made it more difficult for us to engage face-to-face and have these yeah, discussions. Yeah, well, we don't. We don't do it. We don't do it. And the thing is, too, is also thinking about how was it that people talked to you when you were growing up? Were you always put down, right? And does, does a loud voice mean I'm doing something wrong? Do we feel ashamed, right? Does it trigger that in us? Right. So just knowing all those things about ourselves and our partner. So we have time for one last question. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, in light of all of this, yeah. you know, what's your best advice for trying to be more engaging and having these discussions? Um, so practice some skills, practice about nice things too, right? right? Yeah. And the basic recipe is, you know, I feel when you, right? Like I feel really appreciative when you bring me a coffee in the morning, right? right. Practice the nice things, then it makes it the more challenging challenging ones, the more uncomfortable emotions a little bit easier. And um, and and try and catch yourself before it's really big. Yeah. You know, when you wait until you're ready to explode, that's not really helpful. Even if it's a little thing like, you know, the way you handed me the pen when I asked you for it, I, you know... I felt hurt that you kind of hurled it at me. Like, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that, right? Talk about those little things because it can seem really stupid and inconsequential. But if you don't talk about the little things, then they blow up uh, when they become uh, a little bit bigger and one on top of the other. And then now you're in a full-blown argument that could have been dealt with much sooner. 
That is great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. You're going to come back uh, next month and we'll discuss more sex and relationship issues, right? Always fun to do so. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links on thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by Joel Funa, Rod McDonald, and Carlisle Jansen, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me directly at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on the show when we'll discuss dealing with stress and sleep over the holidays, detoxing your home, holiday books for the home cook, and mindful conflict resolution. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.